Hi, it's Liz Richards Krebs, and surprise, it's a Maximunion. We are talking about our favorite theater of 2019. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. We're back. Uh, we had so, I don't know about everybody else, but I missed Maximu a hell of a lot. And so we decided to get everybody together for an end of the year extravaganza. And everyone's here at the table with their coffee and their donuts and, and Penny Maria's cookies. And I am so happy to see all of my uh, theater friends here. Woo! Yeah. yeah. Everyone is so afraid to like make noise when it's not there. Can we just have seven, seven seconds of people talking over each other? Yeah. Just say yeah. podcast version of about the... theater. Yes, yes, yes. I can't believe Jennifer Lopez threw a bagel at this. I mean, what? I mean, oh my goodness. An absolute Can't C word. What happened? Dove Cameron doesn't off? know what a lemon is. I heard that conspiracy theory on 4chan. <laughs> Imagine, like, can, can Dove Cameron's story be like a slate plus, like <laughs> after the podcast yeah, story? Please, okay, it'll be it'll be a bonus feature. I'll tell everyone about Dove Cameron and lemons because uh, it's my favorite story I that fit, answers none of these questions that we're going to get to. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's go around the table so you know who's here. It's Liz uh, from Fuck Yeah Great Plays. Hi, I'm Jack. I'm the associate dramaturg for new writing at the Joseph Pat Public Theater. Uh, I believe I'm still required to say that my views are my own, so I'm going to. Hello, Penny Maria, and I'll echo that. My views are my own. I'm the marketing director at the Apollo Theater, and from time to time, I do video uh, reviews uh, for To See or Not to See with my colleague Emily Hawkins. Hi, this is Nicole Saratori. I'm a freelance theater critic for Variety and the Stage. I'm Ben Ferber. I'm a theater artist, a former staff member with Manhattan Theater Club and Williamstown Theater Festival, and I used to be the host of Hot Pepper Theater. My name is Oren Squire. I'm a reviewer for New York Theater Review, playwright, and my views are my own and yours, too. Yes. I didn't know that. <laughs> I'm going to tell you. This is David Levy. In the two years since I last appeared on Maximum, I started working at Actors Equity Association, and let me tell you, my views are definitely not theirs. <laughs> Hi, my name's Deep, and I'm the senior editor at American Theatre Magazine, and I'm also the co-host of Token Theatre Friends, along with Jose Solis, who could not be here because he had, he had better things to do. Oh, <laughs> we miss you, Jose. <laughs> like see a show, miss like see you. a show. Yes, uh, we'll, we'll pour one out for all the Maximu co-hosts over the times who have not been able to uh, be here Shout this evening. Shout out to Lindsay. Lindsay, Patty. The other ones. <laughs> the Jose. Isaac, Dave. Isaac. We've had a lot of people. Yeah, we've had years. a lot. I was trying to follow yeah. back, but. Yeah. And we should maybe just give a quick Lindsay update. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lindsay has left New York City, much to our sadness, but to the benefit of Utah and the sports world because she is now the vice president of legal for the women's soccer team in Utah, whose name I do not remember, much to my chagrin. <laughs> but dream job for Lindsay, and frankly, good job, and we miss you, but mm-hmm. fantastic. So, this is going to be a two-parter, like we've done it in the past. The first part are the questions we always have, and then our second part, I went back to the archives and found some of my favorite questions. So, first part, we got the same questions we've done every year, and then the second part, I went back and pulled some questions, some of my favorites from the last couple of years to make everyone answer. So, I feel so weird. I feel like I'm filling Lindsay's shoes, and I just don't know if I can. 
part one, if you had relatives, smart ones, who enjoy good theater coming to town for the holidays, what show currently playing in New York City would you recommend? I figure I'll go first because that way no one else can steal my answer, which is what the Constitution means to me. Mm. Damn uh, it, David! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which has now extended its run. It started at New York Theatre Workshop. They've transferred to Greenwich House, which is on Barrow Street and used to be called the Barrow Street Playhouse, but is now not because politics. And uh, it's just a really wonderful show. Heidi Schreck, is that her name? Oh, yeah. uh, guys, I did not realize we'd be doing this episode, so I didn't see theater this year with like my Remember Details hat on. <laughs> but it's a really wonderful show where she... Uh, manages to combine the personal and the political, gets us all thinking about what does it mean to be a citizen and what do the laws mean and what are the possibilities for positive change. And I, I just found it really moving and surprisingly not preachy. And it's also something that I think no matter where your relatives fall on the political spectrum, they will find something that speaks to them. Shout out to Oliver Butler, the director, and Sarah Looney, the dramaturg, on that play. And I, I concur. It was amazing, and it offered a feminist perspective on the Constitution. I took my sister, who's a corporate lawyer, and she loved it, and she wants to take her other lawyers, but it's, it doesn't run for very long, which, off-Broadway theater, make things longer. But it is going to Washington, D.C., so if you have relatives who are there or who are visiting there later this year. I think it's in April. Mm-hmm. It's a woolly mammoth, right? Yeah. And I, I don't know. In my heart of hearts, I really hope that someone films it because I think even though it's actually very theatrical and very live and has some audience, I, I don't want to say participation because I don't want to scare you off, but some <laughs> like, like it, it feeds on having a live audience there. I also think it would work really well on Netflix or PBS or something like that. I'm going to go with Child's Christmas in Wales at Irish Rep. Uh, I just saw it. It's Christmassy, but it's not overly saccharine. There's beautiful music. It's very well lit. I know that's a weird thing to say, but I did enjoy the lighting. <laughs> um, there's a girl who plays the fiddle and sings and acts, and then all of a sudden she starts uh, dancing while she's playing the fiddle. It's incredible. Um, and it's just, it was a nice, warm Christmassy show. It's also like, an hour long. It's perfect. <laughs> you can squeeze it in between your shopping and your big hefty dinner. It sounded like you were describing a dream you had. <laughs> and then there was a girl with a fiddle and <laughs> lights. It was. It was very warm and comforting and a little dreamy and mm. Christmas. I'm going to say fabulation. Um, A lot of my family, um, you know, we're from what we live in uh, Miami now, um, and I grew up in the inner city, and I could just really relate to that character, trying to climb on up to the top, and you think you've made it, and then, whoo, you never know. Something can just knock you back down to the bottom. Um, The the main character actually um, has her own business, is very wealthy, um, gets had some complications and winds up back home uh, where she started in the Brooklyn Projects, which is very interesting. So um, I, I enjoyed the journey of that show and found a lot of moments to uh, relate to. It actually um, has quite a bit of comedy as well, <laughs> um, which we don't get to see often from playwright Lynn Nottage. But yeah, I think my family members will be into that show. 
that was my favorite play at Playwrights Horizon. I saw it in 2004. Mm-hmm. Intimate Apparel was down the street, so I couldn't get a ticket for that. Someone gave me a ticket for this new Lynn Nottage comedy, which sounds like a contradiction in terms. Yes. And I've never laughed harder. Charlene yeah. Woodard, am I saying her name right? Yeah. She was the initial star in it. Fantastic, hilarious, mm-hmm. funny, definitely worth seeing. And I saw it again. Yeah. So. I, I will say um, that the, on the night that I saw it, it probably was, I'm going to say, about five people of color in there. It was me and another group of young girls. And there were parts where we just could not stop laughing. And all of the older white patrons were like, what's happening? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that joke. Maybe yeah, that joke went right over your head. <laughs> but I really enjoyed it. <laughs> And this, is, this revival is at the Signature Theater yes, where you can yes. see the show along with these old white patrons. Yes, it's, it's extended through January 13th. Uh, the show I will recommend is Say Something Bunny. It is a long-running show uh, in Chelsea in a tiny little studio that only takes about 15 or 20 audience members every performance. I saw it during the summer, and I got to sit at the table. Everyone is assigned a role And the actor goes through two audio wires from 1952 and 1954 around this Jewish family in Long Island. And she bought these audio wires at a uh, a state auction. And she reenacts the audio you hear and pieces together the life of this family. And you're assigned a role in the family, whether you're the dog or bunny or what the father or the mother, and she explains what your role is, and you get to read through this enormous script of all the detail that she has compiled through research. And it is a fascinating, uh, what is the word, entomological or uh, whatever you want to call it, study into America, into Jewish culture, into New York City at a very particular time, and it's real. And then at the end of this performance, she actually tells you what part she got right what parts she got wrong, what parts were confirmed by the last living brother in the family, and you see them, and it's, it's beautiful and fascinating and strange and very theatrical because there's only 20 people. And it's been running for like a year and a half, low-key, silently in Chelsea. And then I also say the 9-11 tour, which I also got, and I was the only person on the tour, and it became very intimate because a lot of them are done by firefighters. Mm. So he was describing what went on that day in 9-11 from that perspective. And it was theatrical and not a cheap way, but in a very transformative way to have someone sitting next to you telling a story next to the 9-11 memorial about what happened. But yeah, Say Something Bunny, 9-11 memorial, check it out. Yeah, I think we have we saw Say Something Bunny and did a review of it right when it opened uh, back in the archives off Maximum somewhere. And I have it as one of my worst moments of the theater this year. Oh. Were you sitting at the table? Yes. Oh. Oh. Were you the dog or were you like... No, <laughs> no, I really like that. I think the whole ethics of that piece were really hard for me to take. Um, I'm surprised that I'm, I'm the person who's going to be talking about Broadway in this moment. But the thing I would recommend for... Uh, savvy theater relatives from out of town would be Choir Boy, uh, which has just uh, made its Broadway debut this week, actually. Um, after an off-Broadway debut a few years ago uh, at the Manhattan Theater Club, they uh, have now transferred it to Broadway years later um, with uh, largely the same creative team. It's Trip Coleman directing Terrell Alvin McCraney's play. And let me just say, Terrell Alvin McCraney is from Liberty City, where I grew yes, indeed. up. Whoa, whoa. We attended the same after-school program at the African Heritage Cultural Arts Center. 
Just no. That's that's I, I should have led with that. Yes. <laughs> and I'm so sorry. Um, here's why I'm recommending Choir Boy is I remember enjoying this play kind of a few years ago when it debuted, and uh, Terrell has obviously uh, had uh, had some some pretty banner years um, since then. Um, he won a he won a gold statue at this thing the, uh, mm-hmm. a year or so ago, and um, he did th- La Land win that. Just kidding. Oh, oh. oh. wow. Um, but what for those who who may have seen the show for those who may have seen the show uh, in its previous form, um, Terrell has completely rewritten it. It is a, it feels like a very different play, and I think that's a, just an extension of the fact that Terrell's a different writer now than he was yeah. when that play first came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that it is beautifully written. It's structurally the best thing that I think Terrell's ever written. It kind of functions as a musical. Um, for those who don't know, the play is about a historically black private boarding school, um, and it's about sort of this young man who's about to be a senior uh, and is the director of the school's choir program um, who uh, is gay and uh, at a, in, in an environment that um, is very hostile to that fact about him. Um, but there are these moments where the titular choir boys uh, perform songs uh, that are arranged by the brilliant Jason Michael Webb and choreographed by Camille Brown that are absolutely amazing and transformative and better than most musical numbers in actual musicals that I've seen all year. So if you're looking for something that is fun and moving, that is not afraid of thought um, and uh, specificity, I would recommend Choir Boy um, at the uh, Friedman Theater through the Manhattan Theater Club. Yeah, I'm going to see it next Friday. Oh, I'm going next so, week, too. Oh, wow, wonderful. Okay, so we'll talk about that. Yeah. And, and Camilla um, Brown has also had a banner year, so I'm really Absolutely. excited to see this iteration of the show. Yeah. Um, I'm going to recommend the other Josh Cohen, which is the return of the little 90-minute musical that um, happened a couple of years ago and then got revived at Paper Mill and is back on a commercial off-Broadway run. So it's created by Steve Rosen and David Rossmer, who also co-star in it as two versions of Josh Cohen, about a guy who's having, like, the worst year of his life. Um, But it is narrated by his sort of future self. So, like, things are going to work out, but it's just going to take a while to get there. And it's all sort of uh, Neil Diamond-themed and Star Wars-themed and all sorts of really goofy, wonderful sort of love about family um, and when life kind of gets you down and how you kind of pick yourself back up again. So it is a sort of fun, wonderful little musical that I'm so happy has gotten another chance at life. Um, And the benefit of going last (laughs) is that uh, all of my recommendations have been taken by the other wonderful people sitting at this table. Mm -hmm. So a second up to what the Constitution means to me. And there is, however, something that I have not been able to see that I'm seeing tonight, (laughs) so I will have seen by the time this is out, that I hear should be on everyone's list and that's Slave Play at New York Theater Workshop. Mm. So I can't say anything about it because I haven't seen <laughs> it, but uh, let's hope future me doesn't regret saying this. And those of you who have seen it, just we no spoilers, please. I, no, we're like, mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. You well, don't even know. <laughs> yes. I don't. Many, so many levels in that show. Mm. No, I think I'm, I'm going last. Man, on, on all of your family are classy artsy people (laughs) mine are like extremely lowbrow and mainstream and i love them for that but if if my non-theater going family goes is coming to new york i would take them to see if if i could convince them to pony up the money i would take them to see harry potter on broadway Uh. 
Because my seven and nine-year-old niece and nephew, they are big Harry Potter fans now because it is the age. And they've devoured all of the books and they want to see the play. And the great thing about, I mean, granted, the Harry Potter play is bad fan fiction. And as a Harry Potter fan, I am not defending the material at all. But what it does that the movies don't do very well is showcase magic because I think now with 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 so much CGI on screen, our brain has become immune to the wonder of it. And so, anytime you see like world-ending battles, you're you're like, oh, that's a thing that happens. That's fine. It doesn't. It's not spectacular anymore. The way the same the same way like seeing Star Wars for the first for, for the first time was spectacular. But what Harry Potter does so well is it because of the effects on stage are so practical so you can feel the fire that's coming from the stage it looks real and you think that it's real and that's the thing that theater can give people now that movies can't which is the actual sense of you're witnessing something that actually exists in real life and can't be replicated by a cgi screen and maybe king kong too that that's kind of the same concept as well so, what was your favorite moment at the theater this year? My favorite moment was not actually a production. It was a stage reading of Adia and Chloris Snatch Joy by, if you can help me pronounce the name, Infoniso Dolphia. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. Um, I mean, it was just so magical. I really, really had such an amazing time. And I feel like uh, that show could be done without any set. Like, you don't even need it because the writing is so powerful. The interaction between um, the cast and the characters are amazing. And just the whole idea that, yes, life is rough, life is insane, but the entire time your ancestors are guiding you along pushing you um, to, you know, the next level that's going to really give your life more purpose and more meaning is really amazing. Um, And this is, I believe, um, going to be the last play in the Ufot cycle. Um, So uh, she hasn't finished all the shows yet, but this is um, one of the, this was a little preview to what's to come. Um, And if you don't know, she's writing a nine or ten play cycle um, about the Nigerian-American experience. And especially, you know, being from an immigrant family as well, my family's from the Bahamas, um, again, uh, there's a lot of connective points. Um, So I really, really had a moving time at that reading, and that was at Manhattan Theater Club. Um, Yeah, I had to kind of sneak away. I had a long lunch break, but it was (laughs) worth it for that show. I think my favorite moment uh, is a combination of moments so I was dating a lot this year, and <laughs> everyone's yeah. face at the same I time. I loved it. I was dating a lot this year. <laughs> did any Just, of them stick? Um, yes. Yay! Some of them did stick, but the day before Valentine's Day, a guy who had ghosted me appeared and said, "Hey, what are you doing tomorrow?" And I said, you mean Valentine's Day? Oh. I'm going to go see Butoh Theater in Greenpoint, as single, as single people do. That's like the most maximum answer one <laughs> would have given. I mean, Did all I the single people. And he no. said, can yeah. I join you? And I, was say, I said, sure. This isn't a date, by the way, because my friend's coming along. 
And then my friend texted afterwards, hey, I got a ticket to Black Yo. Panther. See ya. <laughs> and so it became a date, even though I didn't want to. So we saw this magical Butoh theater piece. And if you remember, it was very rainy on Valentine's Day. Then we walked through the rain to like a French restaurant. Then we walked through McCarran Park, uh, made out. Oh. And then we went home and this lasted for a period of exactly one month up until St. Patty's Day. And this person who appeared uh, just as quickly sort of disappeared, he um, unfortunately, I believe, committed suicide or oh, no. died. But here's the thing, every single time we met in that month from February 16th to March 16th, we met four or five times, it was to see a show. And it's not actually sad. It's actually someone I knew for months, so I'm not like crying about it. Mm -hmm. We met at a Butoh Theater. He could not go to the amateurs, which I saw at Vineyard Theater. Uh, and then our final meeting was to see an acrobatic show in the middle of a nor'easter around early March. And then we were supposed to meet up St. Patty's weekend, but I already had tickets to see a play at La Mama with a friend, a Japanese play. And then he was gone, and I got the news about his passing by someone calling me as I was headed in, heading in to see Edward Albee's zoo story that week. And so this entire relationship was framed, oddly enough, by like art. Mm. It began, it ended, and then the information about how it ended was as I'm walking in to see the zoo story uh, at Signature Theater. And it was one of those things where I guess you could say it's depressing, but it wasn't really depressing. It was someone I knew for a month and almost a beautiful way to know someone and through these interactions and through art. So I know that's way too much detail, but it was beautiful and kind of magical. It sounds like a show itself. I know. The relationship that's sounds like a show. show. I wrote a play about it. Oh, wow. In June, yeah. it's a 10-minute play for New Dramatist. I'm a New Dramatist member. And it was a 10, 15-minute play about these four interactions mm. and about mm. getting the news. And a lot of people responded to it because I was like, well, number one, it's honest. That's actually what happened. And theater and art are intertwined into our sort of interactions and in departing and saying goodbye. Mm. My favorite moment this year at the theater was at Fairview by Jack Asibas Drury at Soho Rep, where 15 minutes before the show ends, Maya Barteng stops the show and tells all the white people on, in the audience to get up on stage. And some of, some of them do, which is interesting, and some of them don't, which, you know, I judged them <laughs> quite a bit. I mean, the night I saw the show, like nothing, no, everyone was very obedient, but I know other people who saw it and the audience members were not having it, if anyone wants to talk about that. But what I loved was the fact that I feel like this is the year where white people realize that they're white people. Mm. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yes, yes. And so I just love like all of these playwrights actually grappling with that. And I love what Jackie did, which was to call out the fact that theater is really white and black people performing on stage for a mostly white audience. Yes, educational, but also at the same time kind of problematic or like it's it's unequal. Mm hmm. And being able to talk about that 
is I think uh, it's a valuable conversation to have about like the nature of performance and who gets to be in the room for the, that performance. So thank you for that, and Jackie, and thank you for making white people uncomfortable. And thank you for your comments on that deep. Yeah. I, I wanted to shout out specifically Abby Corrigan in Usual Girls, um, who was doing delightful work as every weird girl in your elementary school. <laughs> and she just had it down, and it was so... Like, you saw that character, you knew exactly what that was, and it carried the carried through the show in such a beautiful way. And the way that her performance deepened from just this... It, it, it's a character that could have really fallen into shticky ticks. And so, but she made it so heartbreaking and funny, and it made me go, what happened to Della, that girl who always told everyone she was a wolf? <laughs> and like, so much that I literally, I went home on Facebook, and I was like, I wonder what happened to Della. So Della, <laughs> if you're there, let me know that you're okay. Um, but there was just something, I, I really love that play in general, and I think all the performances in it were great, but Abby Corrigan specifically was doing such a bang-on job of just a very specific and yet universal role that I loved. I, like, I, just, I thought it was beautiful. Della's a furry now. hundred percent. hundred percent. Della, give us a howl. <laughs> okay, I had a couple different favorite moments. I'll run through them pretty quickly. But um, I'm going to say the electric clang before the Oklahoma Dream Ballet in Sexy Oklahoma was absolutely for me. <laughs> just like... Sexy <laughs> oh, right. You've been Twitter, I... Jack. You don't know that that's a Oh, thing. yeah. I'm sorry, Jack. Um, David Gordon and I, since 2015, have been calling it Sexy Oklahoma. And if people don't refer to it that way, we don't know what production you're talking about. So. <laughs> I mean, I think most people I know call it Sexy Oklahoma now. I, I mean, I think it has caught on. And I yes. think it's obvious that it's not particularly creative on either of our parts. The other, another moment I really loved was the reveal of the second room in Miriam Buther's set of Three Tall Women. Which I think captured, I mean, it like, works very well within the play. It's just an incredible visual. Uh, it's just one of those kind of really breathtaking stage moments um, that uh, executes a playwright's vision in a really smart way. I would say all the time I spent with Tony Kushner's Angels in America, as much as I hated all the neon and the terrible music and lots of other things about that production, just getting to spend, you know, eight hours several times, <laughs> probably, I don't even know how many hours in total, uh, I think I saw it like six times uh, in the spring, like, was just great to be back with Tony Kushner's work. Um, I think also one of my favorite moments of the theater this year was laughing so hard at Rocktopia. <laughs> Whatever the fuck that was. <laughs> Best yeah. comedy I saw on Broadway. <laughs> it was so bad. It was, I, I don't understand. I don't understand any of it. I still, to this moment, do not understand what I saw. But it was really funny. Um, and then I would say particularly there were sort of these very sort of long pauses in Clarkston, um, the Samuel D. Hunter play, that I think, you know, in particular, Edmund Donovan sort of processing things, his character, thinking through what he's experiencing, that um, I went back and saw it a second time, and I really, really appreciated kind of the, the work that that actor was doing and what the play was achieving. And I think, you know, sometimes it's hard with those, like, there's those big flashy moments, um, Oklahoma Dream Ballet, and then there are those really, really quiet moments. And though for me, I think I've, you know, had sort of, you know, both ends of that spectrum. A small story. 
when I worked at Williamstown Theater Festival a couple of years ago, I was producing for the training program, which does basically a small season in the directing studio, um, which is the smallest space uh, at the festival. Um, there was a production of a, a 10 minute uh, cut of a larger play and uh, and it was directed by a director who whom I like and who is a friend of mine, and it was not good. Um, it made no sense. Uh, it was like not good for any of the actors in it. And truly, I just remembered it as, oh yes, that inscrutable mess. Uh, and then that inscrutable mess got a production at Club Thumb, and I realized, oh no, I'm going to have to see this inscrutable mess because I love everything Club Thumb does. And how could they take a chance on this mess? So I go to it. It's called Plano by Will Arbery. And the first 20 minutes of that play were nothing like what I had seen. They were incredibly good, incredibly funny. It's a very confusing play in which, like, a character is duplicated, in which we sort of see uh, the lives of um, three women over a long period of time compressed, um, in which things can just sort of – scenes change – by people saying the scene changes, it's good. And what I realized was the cut of the play I had seen was minutes 20 through 30. (laughs) (laughs) And when I saw them again, having the information that I had, I loved them. I had such a good time. And I realized, I don't even think the production that I saw was bad. I think I just didn't understand what was happening. It It turned a bad memory into a very, very fond memory. Can I just shout out that that production, I had a very similar journey with uh, Plano by Will Arbery. I, I, I would be remiss, though, if I didn't take this moment to shout out Taylor Reynolds, who directed the Club Thumb uh, production. And it was, I think, the strongest tour de force of directing I've, I, I saw all year. And it's not on any of my answer questions. But I just want to Taylor Reynolds, who's also one of the company members of the Movement Theater Company, is an extraordinary director who we, whose name you will be hearing a lot. Plus one to that, I've had the great fortune of her directing a short piece of mine. She's wonderful. The best. Oh, God, it's so hard to pick, like, a moment that's not a yeah. show. But I think I want to talk about Fiddler off and Dach, which is the Yiddish production of Fiddler on the Roof which is a show I didn't think I ever needed to see again, especially given how much the previous Broadway revival sucked all the joy out of it. And then I went to this because I wasn't going to, A, I wasn't going to pass up the chance to see it in Yiddish. B, I knew some people involved with the production. So we went, and even though I already knew what to expect and I had even heard about some of the specific moments, the way they staged the pogrom at the end of Act One uh, and I'm not going to give it away because the production has uh, unbelievably extended and extended and extended and now is transferring for a commercial run off-Broadway uh, starting in February. So if you haven't seen it, I do highly recommend it. And I haven't seen it and I've never seen it, so no spoiler. Okay. So all I'll say is that, I mean, there is a program that in Act 1, but the way that they stage it, I felt so viscerally in a way I never have in any other production, even very good, very successful productions, uh, it just left me speechless in the way that, like, the best theater can when, even when you know it's coming, it still, like, knocks the wind out of you. So that was that was an incredible moment. My favorite moment um, <laughs> theater this year was at a talkback. <laughs> I call bullshit. No. Right. You'll, you'll, Wait, 
Were you leading the talk back? You, uh, yes, and it was oh, okay. fabulous. No, 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 it wasn't. Um, no, I uh, went out west uh, to see uh, a production of Cambodian Rock Band, which is a amazing play by Lauren Yee that Che Yu directed out there that's actually coming to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival this season. Um, I want to come to New York so badly. So I went out uh, west to South Coast Repertory Theater's production of Cambodian Rock Band. I was like this whirlwind, like one night in just kind of like flying out west. I was during the Nor'easter, actually. I made it out of New York to go see it. And I loved the show. And I'll talk more about it later in the podcast because it's going to be an answer to another question. But when I got there, uh, I was told that it was sort of, it was a Cambodian community night at South Coast Rep. So what they had done is they had done outreach to um, uh, lots of uh, Cambodians and Cambodian Americans who are living around the Orange County area to invite them to see the show, and which was delightful. But of course, you also had your requisite sort of old white um, uh, uh, subscribers there. The show was amazing. Afterwards, the talk back started. And my friend Lauren was in it, and so I was like, oh, I'm going to listen to that. And it was sort of, for the first five minutes, it was, you know, how did you make the play and all this, thing, you know, all the typical talkback stuff. And then it opened up to audience questions, and there was a couple of snide comments from the subscribers. And then one by one, this talkback was 45 minutes, by the way. Uh, one by one, um, and it was all women um, who were Cambodian immigrants, stood up and talked about what the play meant to them. And what became very clear very quickly is that a lot of these women had survived the Khmer Rouge, which is what the play is about. It's about a, a it's set in contemporary day um, where a young woman um, who's Cambodian-American goes back to Cambodia to investigate sort of the surviving war criminals from the Khmer Rouge era. Um, and one by one, uh, women who had been to see the show started talking about their experience fleeing the Khmer Rouge. What, you, what became very clear was that this was among the first times that these audience members had ever talked about this. In fact, a couple of them were there with their children, and afterwards their children were like, I've never heard my mother talk about this experience, never. And this play opened that up for them. And slowly you started to watch the ownership of that theatrical space turn from an older, whiter, privileged class mm. to suddenly being a room that was for this particular segment of the audience. The show was written for them, mm -hmm. and they got to respond to it in a way, there were everyone was crying, it was tears, it was vulnerable, it was raw, and it was the most extraordinary moment of, of the year that I had where it was like, this is what theater can do. This is what theater can open up. And it was, and I was just crying, crying, crying. It was also the answer to when did I cry in a theater this year. It was at the Cambodian Rock Band Talkback. Yeah. Um, so that was my most amazing moment of the year. I was like, oh yeah, this is what theater should do mm -hmm. at its best. Um, anyway. That and is that is, that is such a, that's the power of art. I wrote a docudrama about Cambodia and I researched the music and I didn't think about doing something like this, which is brilliant. Mine was just a docudrama of what happened and then the importance of music and rock music in Cambodia in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But even reading the testimonials and transcribing those while at Juilliard in the computer lab on Super Bowl Sunday when Philip Seymour Hoffman died or overdosed, this is how good my memory is, I remember crying reading the testimonials of what these women went through uh, in year zero and all the other things that happened and blending in the music. Okay, this is one of, always one of my favorite questions. What was your worst moment at the theater this year? And I think we're starting with Ben now, which just seems perfect. <laughs> <laughs> A story. I knew it. Story time with Ben. So, 
It's going to start with actually a very good moment in the theater um, at a play called Two Mile Hollow um, by Leonanika Winkler yes. that the Women's Project did as part of their Pipeline Festival. It's a very good play. It's all actors of color playing rich white people except for one. Um, and it's a satire of like the kind of plays that Manhattan Theater Club does. <laughs> <laughs> I will actually say they literally played the actual sound file that Manhattan Theater Club uses intermission uh, pre-show about head like headsets and yeah it's uh, it's real. So there's a very good moment in the play in which um, the like the like the young scion of the family like this young white dude uh, freaks out and destroys a room as happens in this kind of play. However, he does so very gingerly. He sort of he he picks things up and sets them down on the floor <laughs> in a satire of the fact that when that happens it plays uh, like that they do not go full out because they can't break anything yeah. <laughs> fast forward there was a play at Manhattan Theater Club <laughs> um, it was called India Pale Ale um, and there is a moment in that play in which that happens. And the great irony is the moment was acted by the same actor. <laughs> um, who's an actor I actually rather like. His name is um, Satya Sritaran, and uh, I love him. He's very good. And the f- But the fact that it was him. I had an answer, but honestly, I'm going to talk about Clueless, y'all. Um, I, uh, yeah. Um, first off, it was three hours no. when I saw no. it, which it shouldn't. Um, no. 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 The Look, it should be a 90-minute, 90 minutes in, in and out, bang it out. Um, so that was a problem um, for me. Um, I had this moment I, I swung by um, the treehouse next door uh, to get just a little snack before I went to the show and I sat down next to some people who were working on the show who trashed the show so if you're working on a show and you're going to trash your show first off don't use people's names yes. and probably don't do it in the restaurant next door to your theater um, so just a, a heads up so like I knew going out I was like this is going to be a mess and then it was and like I said, it was three hours. There were no laughs. I was in the front row. My jaw was just open the whole time. I was like, "This, what is this? This should be a slam dunk. It's so easy. It's a goofy, bright, 90, like just, just legally blonde the whole thing. It'll be fine. And it was just a disaster. And it was such a slog. And I was like, I can't believe they took this piece, this movie that I love and made it into something that is such garbage. But did you stay for act two? I was in the front row center, and yes, yeah. because I hoped it was going to get better, <laughs> and no. <laughs> um, and then this is this is my my lemon story. So, Dove Cameron had a lot of prop issues the night that I was there. She lost two of them. I could see where they were on stage, and it took a lot not to tell her where they were um, when she couldn't find them. So, someone was supposed to hand her a slice of lemon. She was supposed to take the slice of lemon, squeeze it into the tea, put it on the side of the the plate. And then they're in the middle of the scene and someone hands her a whole lemon. And she stops and she's looking at the lemon and she's looking at the cup and she doesn't really know what to do. 
So she just flips the lemon on its side and gives what I would call a, a tiny lemon back massage just over the top of the cup and then throws the lemon onto the table. And it was the weirdest thing. I thought, has she never seen a lemon? <laughs> Did she know how tea works? What? I don't... She, it was just a disaster. And that was in like the first five minutes of the show. And I just went, oh, God, this is what we're in for. So um, I don't think Dove Cameron knows what lemons are. And that's what I'm putting forth uh, today in this presentation. I, <laughs> I was there on artist night, and I could say a lot of people agree with you. We were trying to find the right terms because bad is so not descriptive enough for what Clueless the musical truly was, especially as someone who was a fan. Yeah. And so some of the things we said that I told Nicole, a malignant virus, <laughs> an ISIS recruitment video <laughs> on what's wrong with America. Uh, those are some of the terms we came up with. Like, Saran wrap of Satan. All you had to do was say, like, she's a virgin who can't drive. And I would have laughed because I love, like, I love the lines. And for some reason, nobody could speak a line. And Dove Camera doesn't know what lemons are. Um, it was just... It, mind-boggling how it became so bad shameless capitalism jesus age well speaking Wouldn't about we say clueless capitalism there you go <laughs> uh speaking about problems in america uh, <laughs> which one <laughs> um, my north, north america <laughs> north america um uh, my worst experience of the year made me so angry, I'm like burning up right now. So it was a decision, I don't know who made this decision, but it was a wrong decision. It's Carousel, sorry, oh. Carousel on Broadway. I was, you know, I was like, oh, I have a, a nice little seat and the orchestra was a comp. I was like, oh, look at this little set, it's cute, you know, settling in, I'm like, okay, I'll just go along for this. Oh, so. There's a biracial child in this version of the show. No, it was a white girl with a raggedy wig that I guess was supposed to denote mixed hair. And it was so distracting. I could not focus on anything for that second act because I just wanted to get up and rip that wig off of her head. It was lazy. It was pitiful. They could have found a person of color or they, I mean, at the very <laughs> least, gotten an appropriate hairpiece. Like, there are stores all over the world. You couldn't find a, a, you couldn't find a biracial a child in New York City? Are you I kidding mean, me? I mean, it's exactly. And in the dance world, I mean, come on. Come on. Come on. I mean, everyone knows. Like, it's, it's actually finally taking off, you know, people of color in the dance world. So I'm just like, what is the problem here? And no one noticed, like, did a cast member say anything? When they were putting the raggedy wig on the white dancer's head, did she not think to say something? Or she was like, I need to pay my rent. I can't say anything about this. Like, I don't know. It just, it, it's, it, it was pathetic and, and so, oh, I'm just so upset about it. Just real quick, good for Otto. I would say, hate to rag on new group, but I saw good for Otto. And Clueless was at least so bad I was awake. Good for Otto put me in this weird trance-like fugue state where I couldn't get out. I felt like my limbs were paralyzed. Everyone was talking very quietly and softly. And it was on a very snowy January day. This was also a date. And it sort of put us both into this strange 
other feeling that I, I can't quite describe right now, but that would probably be my worst experience because at least a play that's really bad usually wakes you up. It's like bad cough or it pokes you. This play put me into like a paralysis that took me a long time to get out of afterwards. So sorry, I usually like David Hare. He's the writer of it. And some of the stuff in New Group I do like, but those are the two worst things I saw happen to be, you know, in their season. I did see Jerry Springer, the musical from the new group, and that is one of the highlights of the year for me. So sometimes <laughs> it works, sometimes trashy, there's good trashy, and then there's True. bad trashy. My, the worst thing that happened to me at the theater this year was, um, so I'm, I'm in St. Louis, and I get tickets to go to the Muni, which is this 1,500-seat amphitheater in St. Louis. It's outdoors. And they're doing Jerome Robbins Broadway, which is a, um, a compendium of different routines from different Jerome Robbins Broadway shows. Okay, fine. I love dancing. We'll do this. And uh, I'll just set the, I'll just, you know, walk you all through it. So in the weird thing about the Muni is that the, at the beginning of every show, you stand up for, you stand up for the national anthem which was interesting. I don't, I did not do that. Uh, and then it starts and they do full costumes for every number. And so they start with on the town, you know, white, soldier, white you know, Navy guys dancing. And then at, some, at one point, the Navy, the seamen uh, put on um, Native American headdresses and hula skirts and start dancing. And, and then there's a white lady doing a really bad Latinx accent. And then they do the, here's the resistance, as, they, as you would say, is they do uh, the small house of Uncle Thomas from The King and I. And aside from like one person, it's all white people. Mm -hmm. And, they're, and tup, the white lady playing Tup Team's doing a bad Asian accent. Mm -hmm. And then, and then I start hearing people near me yell, booing really loudly and, and yelling, boo, yellow face. And then they start yelling really loudly and then they stand up and they march out of the theater. And that was bad, but the protest was good. Yes. <laughs> So up and down, right there. Oh, and then and I also left my I also left early because I was pretty much done by that point. But and when I came out there, they had called the cops, and there was just like a bunch of police officers at the front of the theater, just looking really confused, being like, "Wait, wait, where, 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 where'd the people go?" I'm not going to mention the show, but I am going to mention something that happened to me a couple of weeks ago at my own theater which was I was checking in on uh, my beloved, my favorite, Wild Goose Dreams by Hansel Jung, directed by Lee Silverman, uh, which I'm very proud of. Uh, and I was, checking, I was checking in on the show, just seeing it, and I'm sitting in the back uh, with Lee Silverman and enjoying, enjoying a show that I love. Uh, and if, for those of you who don't know me, I'm a, I'm a relatively exuberant audience member. When I enjoy <laughs> something, I'm known to laugh, I'm known to slap my knee, I'm known to yell yes when I feel like there is something that requires me to say yes. <laughs> after the show, and I had, I had a good time. I'm going to go hang out with the cast after. It's going to be nice. Uh, as, I'm I'm, as I'm egressing from the show afterwards, uh, a gentleman, uh, and before you ask, yes, he was, uh, <laughs> 
turned around and said, excuse me, I just have to say that you, you were laughing so loudly and being so effervescent that it completely distracted me uh, from the show, and I felt incredibly insulted by it. I've never been so alienated at the public theater before. And I just want to let you know, I'm sure you're just trying to support the team, but I found that to be really alienating and insulting, and I, I don't know if I'm going to come back here. And I just sort of stood struck. He was expecting me to apologize. There was a brief pause. And I just sort of stood there, and I don't think he knew I worked there. Anyway, and then he left, and I kind of just sat there feeling like angry at him and fuck this guy and all this stuff. But then it started to kind of fester in my mind because it wasn't just I worked there. It was there was it was something that I of course have known about that I think had been directed to me for the first time, which was um, policing of how someone is supposed to watch a show. Now you don't have to like Wild Goose Dreams. I don't care if you don't like Wild Goose Dreams. And clearly, I don't think he had the best time at the show, and that's fine. Um, I'm glad we have his money. But um, but to to police someone about how they're allowed to enjoy a show or not enjoy a show, the the sort of the over policing, the over formalization of theater etiquette. Um, and I'd watched this happen to other people throughout the year, and this sort of, in, you know, in December, sort of capping it with my own experience with it was just sort of like, I hate this so much. If you ever want people of different backgrounds and cultural experiences and different just types of humanity to come to the theater, we have to stop doing this. And it just thought a lot about who owns spaces and mm. who feels entitled to certain theatrical mm. spaces. Um, and that uh, I, I've been thinking a lot about that since. So that was a that was a bad moment. Come on, show me a picture of this man. I'll speak, <laughs> I'll, I'll speak to him. You know what he looks like. Oh, Tweet it out. I know exactly what he looks like. As I, a I, person of color, yeah. I can testify to being very well policed mm -hmm. in New York theater and theater around the country as far as when I'm allowed to laugh, when I should not say anything, when I should be quiet, when I should move my feet, how I should sit. White people love telling people of color how they should live their lives, sit, and be in their space as they exactly see right. it, and they will tell you that all the time, all day. Exactly. I've, been, I've been criticized for laughing too loud. When I don't even know anyone in the show, I saw Will Eno's flu season. Mm -hmm. I found it incredibly funny. It was insulting so, to someone, apparently, because I was laughing. Mm. I've seen shows at Juilliard that were comedies that are supposed to be funny yeah. that I've laughed at just because I found them funny and I've been told that I was distracting, laughing at a comedy. So I've, I've had a whole, I could write a book mm -hmm. about being policed in audiences. Yeah. Someone yelled at me once time. for enjoying beautiful too much, which like, <laughs> yeah. No, no. And it's past the theater. It also goes into um, all art spaces. At a museum, I had this grown woman, this, was, this year, this white woman told me, oh, you can't have drinks. Um, you can't have wine in the galleries. Boo, I grew up going to museums. You don't know me. I, I, I really wanted to get into it with her because that's just inappropriate. She didn't say that to any other white person who was with me who had a drink, but she felt the need to walk up to me and inform me of that. So I relate. Daily life. Well, yeah, and I mean, I've told my story about getting policed at laughing at Ironbound, and Martina Mayock and Daniela Topol were like two people down the row for me, the playwright and the director, and they were like, couldn't believe what was happening, and Martina passed me a note in the middle of the show that just said, keep laughing, you're awesome, <laughs> and now she has a Pulitzer Prize, and I have her little note like on my mirror forever, but like, Sell yeah, on eBay one day. Oh my God, no, never. It's my, my treasure. Classic. Oh my God, totally. 
Um, okay, I guess, so I'm going to talk about a really traumatizing moment at the theater this year, which feels like a lot of these are um, for everybody here. Uh, yeah, well, this actually happened in Edinburgh with a Canadian show, so it turns out assholery is everywhere. Um, and, and this is, it, it sort of has come up this year a lot, especially with the conversation about trigger warnings and content warnings of the New York Times and their article recently. They're not very, you know, th- thorough article. Um, but I was assigned to review a show in Edinburgh um, by a Canadian company, and it was called Daughter. And before I walked in, I had seen an American theater producer tweeting about it on Twitter um, and getting into an argument with one of her colleagues about whether it was a waste of time or not. And I sort of you know, popped my head into their conversation to be like, hey, what is this? Because I have to review this uh, tomorrow. And she's like, well, I'm going to tell you right now that, that if you have any experiences with violence, domestic violence, partner violence, sexual violence, like this is a show you need to be prepared walking in for. And, you know, I know there are people who feel that, you know, providing that kind of information up front is too much or, you know, ruins the experience of the surprise or whatever. But I really, really appreciated that she, you know, gave me that information so I could walk into this show a little bit more girded than I might have been otherwise. And, you know, whether that influences my review or whatever, I don't give a fuck because, honestly, the show used trauma to complain about... um, violent people (laughs) and it used the language of trauma it traumatized the audience Mm. to express um how bad abusers are and it's funny because if you've ever experienced abuse you know how bad abusers are and you don't actually need a dumb play to tell you that and if you haven't experienced abuse well great so you got to watch a traumatic show um but the problem is is walking in the door you don't know and the the play intends with very quote good intentions to you know try to open people's eyes to this issue of abuse and oh my goodness people don't know and there are absolutely people who don't know but frankly I knew and I didn't need it and one of my other friends went and saw the show and when she left the entire ladies room was just women crying and I don't think that that's actually achieving what you set out to do and before anyone I mean like there was a woman director it was a male actor he they co-wrote it together I believe they worked with some trauma centers in Canada afterwards and they handed out a little dumb fucking pamphlet afterwards of people's like essays of their experiences of the show and were so happy to see their abusers you know appear on stage and frankly I wasn't Right. Good for you. I'm so glad that for other people it was really, you know, a productive use of working through their trauma. For me, it was a really uninvited conversation with my trauma. And so, you know, I do really believe, and I said this on Twitter, like, I believe in content warnings, I believe in trigger warnings, it'll be the hill that I die on, because honestly, like, to recreate trauma for people who have already gone through it, to me, is just... Um, it, it just, it, you know, it's pointless. It's not, it's not what I need. And if somebody else gets something out of it, I guess great. But the director walking the line of people walking into the show, offering to give, you know, essentially content warnings to people or tell them what happens while they're in line for the show is a little late in the conversation to get having that. So um, for me, that was definitely like one of the worst experiences of one of the worst moments for me at the theater this year. Sorry. Jesus, everybody. I'm sorry. What was your favorite non-traditional, immersive, experimental, outdoors, on a boat, pizza theater you saw this year? I got to see Buffalo Bailey's Ranch for Gay Horses, Troubled Teen Girls, and other 
which I think is the only show that actually got me to Bushwick this year, and I'm glad I went. Uh, I'm going to go with something I saw very early in the year. I saw Thunderstorm 2.0 at Skirball, um, which was this crazy, disorienting story about um, a man who's cheating on a woman with another woman, but you watch them set up the film shots in real time and move the cameras and the way they set people in space to create way more than what's actually happening on stage. It was like a, like watching a kaleidoscope for an hour and a half. It was incredible. I'm going to go with the mile long high, the mile long opera on the high line. Um, it was a very immersive um, experience. You could walk right up to singers and listen to their stories. Um, they actually recruited uh, choirs from all over New York, including including Staten Island. Um, so it was really interesting to have all those different voices, so many people of color. And they actual, actually were telling the story of kind of the area um, and how it's been like gentrified. Uh, but it was just really um, a wonderful once in a lifetime opportunity. And I walked from 14th Street to 34th Street. <laughs> Um, I uh, the question mentions a boat and in fact my favorite was on a boat at 5am it was the summer solstice edition of the 12 shouts to the 10 forgotten heavens um, which is Sybil Kempson's project with the Whitney which I believe is concluded now um, where it was solstice and equinox uh, performance art and I got to th- you know go to a boat at 5am from the East River to the Whitney I got to throw cotton off the boat I got to wave a flag around in the wind it was lovely is that bad for the fish? I don't know. Valid well, it wasn't cotton balls. It was, it was literally like spores. Oh, interesting. I'm, I'm going to say uh, Inside the Wild Heart by Group BR, which is a Brazilian theater company. They did an immersive show over in an, a three-story art space, and it was gorgeous, and I learned about a writer I'd never heard of before, so that was nice. I'm going to go, I have sort of two. One is uh, 50-50 Old School Animation, we did in the Under the Radar Festival last year, and uh, we're going to be doing it again this year uh, because it is the most positive form of nausea I've ever had in the theater. It's horrifying, that show. And even though it's not technically experimental, I do feel like I want to say something about What to Send Up When It Goes Down by Alicia mm-hmm. Harris, directed by Whitney White. The second sort of movement of that piece is very much a traditional sit-down play, but the first moment is this sort of this moment of collecting the sort of feelings and identities of everyone who's present to see the show um and i won't say much more than that but yeah i would say jupiter's lifeless moons by dane terry which has now been turned into a podcast for um night vale called dream boy um just sort of a very strange sexy musical fantastical mysterious kind of piece that i saw at coil and um rest in peace coil uh the festival that is no more um but you know i'm glad that it has found another medium um and hopefully more people will sort of tune into his really unusual work cabaret performer gideon irving i saw him in a living room on the upper east side uh for those of you who don't know i am a playwright but i am also a co-producing writer on the tv show the good fight on CBS All Access. (laughs) And the showrunners invited the writing team to their living room one evening to see Gideon perform. They had seen him at Edinburgh, and he sort of specializes in going into people's living rooms and doing these cabaret performances and setting up. So it was maybe an audience of 20, 30 people. Uh, He has like a tambourine and all these little doodads, and he puts on this performance with improvised songs and little sketches. And then he requires us to contribute, and I contributed 
my uh, camp song, Stan Stan the Lavatory Man, <laughs> to uh, the nighttime lullabies that people can sing to their kids, and he recorded that, and he sort of travels around the world, and the agreement is he will perform in your living room for free or for a small price, but you have to put him up so he can sleep there overnight. So he travels around the world performing in people's living rooms as a troubadour, and so you can look up his name, Gideon Irving, very talented. You can hear more about him on our October 5th, 2016 episode. And what was your favorite non-theater performance, cabaret, comedy, music, etc.? I was thinking cabaret in this. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, I just want to shout out this, this incredible group that plays Joe's Pub a lot and is going to be in under the Radar Festival this coming January. They're called the Illustrious Blacks. Um, they are... Um, I'm just going to say the title of one of their albums because I think it will give you a decent idea of the kind of tone they're going for here, which is Neo-Afro-Futuristic Psychedelic sur- Surrealistic Hippie. Um, and it's just amazing and wonderful. And please go see the Illustrious Blacks. Yeah, I've seen them before. They're very forward-moving. Um, speaking of forward, I'm going to go back just really quickly. I want to note Jonathan Payne's... Um, the revolve the revolving door cycles um, for one of the most interesting um, and best shows that was not necessarily traditional. You didn't know when intermission was. You didn't know when the end of the show was. Um, it really kept you on your toes, just like life as a black person. So that was great. And so I'm going to say for the non-traditional moment um, that I really enjoyed, um, I used to work at Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, and they just this past year had um, this talk series that, they, that they're developing, um, and it had two uh, Miami natives on it. Uh, so Robert Battle is currently the artistic director, and then also Terrell Alvin McCraney was there, along with Thelma Golden of the Studio Museum and Rennie Harris, who's um, a choreographer, and then Shanta Thank, who I believe works with Under the Radar uh, Festival. And um, it was just a wonderful talk back. They invited a lot of students, and I was like the grown adult in the audience, like <laughs> so so amazed, like to see like people where I come from, like at the level that they are today. But also, it was one of my favorite moments because I remember being that youth and wondering, like, can I really have a career in the arts? So it was really good to experience that. Um, this will, I believe, be the third time I mention Ike Ufamato on this podcast. <laughs> um, I stand that man. He's so brilliant. He's a comedian performer, um, and I got to see two of his shows this year. Um, my favorite was Ike's Wonderful World of Leisure at Vital Joint as part of the Exponential Festival, which was an hour-long PowerPoint about the act of making a PowerPoint and then about hobbies. And it's, if that sounds ludicrous, it's because it was. And he is a master of making the most mundane things. Hilarious. Uh, and the other one I got to see was Ike by Chance, which is a game show at AntFest. And I got some points in that game show, even as an audience member. And I got actually invited up on, on stage in the world of leisure, <laughs> which was just stepping out of my seat. But he's so much fun, yeah. I will say gaslighting at the Wild Project. Uh, it flew under the radar. I maybe had one cocktail too many before seeing it. So the first 10 minutes, I sort of was in this gross, semi-sleeping, sweating state, and I wasn't paying attention that much. And then all of a sudden, I, I woke up and I found myself in the midst of this topic of how society gaslights women at work and at home in their art. 
and it was non-traditional. It took place as a dance piece, as art they were making, and then the play, whatever we're calling this performance, ended with this chant, this mantra, they had everyone repeat, which was something to the effect of, I don't need your negative energy, you can call me back when you get well. And they had this beautiful melody to that, like, I don't need your negative energy, you can call me back when you get well. And they just kept repeating that, and then the audience joined in, and it had this beautiful harmony to it, and we're all like singing this song as we're heading out, a mantra, a message for ourselves heading out into the world, which frequently gaslights us as people of color, as women, as just creative thinkers who are different, who don't fit into a box. Uh, and we can just always say that to ourselves. And I found myself saying that throughout the year sometimes, you know, so that's something that sort of literally changed me in a way and made me think about my life and about gaslighting women. Long-time listeners might remember that I've spoken in the past about Larry Owens when he was uh, in Gigantic Off-Broadway. Uh, we worked together on some cabaret stuff. This year, he's decided to venture into the world of comedy, and he's gone from like zero to 60 overnight and has developed a really unique voice, someone who fully owns his place in the world as a uh, queer black man of size, and he's doing things that are really stretching the comedy space and drawing on his skills as a singer and as an actor as well as a comedian. Um, he does wig work, he does songs, he does lip sync, he also does some traditional stand-up and storytelling, and it's all wrapped into this thing that... I've seen him in a couple different spaces this year. Uh, over the summer, he did an outdoor show that Reductress put on at University City, which was sort of a big outdoor space that he 100% filled. And then I saw him at Caroline's on Broadway where it, it was like him on a bill with some more traditional stand-up comedians. And it was like the room didn't quite know what to do with him, but like everyone knew that something like really special and different was happening. And uh, if he's coming to perform near you, I definitely recommend it. And I can't wait to see how he continues to evolve. Blacklight by Daniel Alexander Jones which I saw twice and I regret nothing about it. And besides the fact that Daniel and his alter ego, Jamama Jones, is such a magnetic performer and has such a soothing, like, radiant aura, and besides the fact that there are, like, 13 costume changes and they're all glittery and fabulous and you can touch Daniel, I mean, Jamama, at one point, consensually, and it was a fact that it raised so... It was just... It was one of those shows that acknowledged the fact that we're living in a very difficult time, a difficult time, not the most difficult time, acknowledging that, but at the same time, like bringing people in together to figure out a way out of it and a way through it. And I, what I loved about it was the mu well, one, the music, and, and it's, it's, it's all original songs, and some of it has been recorded, and others of it I hope will be recorded so that I can have Joama Jones in my ears at all times, telling me how to live, how to get through difficult, difficult times. But the great thing was, uh, there's a question of like can, how, how to be a witness some, to something, and how to be an active witness, and what is our obligations to each other when we're witnessing something that that is unjust and like what are and what are we supposed to do about it and so 
that I, I, I kind of want to see it again now. Especially with me. Yeah. <laughs> yes, especially with Patty Maria. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with Nanette, which I ended up seeing live at Soho Playhouse with Hannah Gadsby. Um, I have not seen the Netflix version. I've kind of chosen not to, but from what I understand from uh, Ben was talking about having seen both, that the Netflix cuts out a lot of the jokes, which I think is a shame because for me, the impact of that show was you spend this time laughing and laughing at stories, and then she twisted and deconstructs the whole thing, and it makes you look back on the beginning of the play and changes the interpretation of the beginning in like a really beautiful, smart way. She's incredibly smart at constructing and deconstructing um, jokes. So, I, yeah, I just, I really enjoyed that. I don't have much else to say about it. Mine was going to be Nanette as well. Um, and the only thing I would sort of say about that was I think there was a moment where she's so um, angry and protective of herself and is fighting for herself. And in that moment, I felt her also sort of fighting for other people who've experienced things similar to what she had experienced. And there was like great catharsis for me in that and seeing it in the room and being in the room with it. I can't even imagine what a recorded version of it would be because it felt so important to me. At least it felt in seeing it live, the sort of having that kind of oxygen sort of like sucked out of the room while you're all in it together was really important to the feel of the piece. Yeah, I remember I was going to say it reminded me sort of of Fairview in a way where you spend this time laughing, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm having a great time, this is such a fun night out, and then the, the other shoe drops, and you just, you have to question everything else that just came before, and especially your place as an audience member for what you've been enjoying. And you know what, it's the uncomfortable, but like the good uncomfortable, which I'm into. Thanks for listening. There's too many of us on here to list all of our Twitter handles, but go to the show notes so you can check us all out. Stay tuned for part two. <laughs>